The Dorothy Cooyer Archive Project is a special Writing on the Wall commission from National Museums Liverpool. In the last episode, we explored the early life of black British Liverpool-born anti-racist activist Dorothy Cooyer. Writing on the Wall have been working with Dorothy's archive since October, which reveals her truly unwavering dedication to black political activism spanning seven decades. The Dorothy Kuya archive is, in many ways, a time capsule of 20th century black British history. As is well known, Black American civil rights gained tremendous momentum and support during the 1960s. Less known is the Black British civil rights movement that, although sharing much with its US brothers and sisters, had its own distinct aims and objectives. Following the post-war migration of the Commonwealth countries, Britain's black population had increased to around 1 million by the middle of the decade. The reaction to this increase from both the British state and its society was hostile, to say the least. The 1960s is a crucial decade in the history of what we now call modern British race relations. And at this pivotal point in its development, Dorothy Cooyer, the little girl from Liverpool 8, was on the front line. I'm project manager Jenea Pickett, and this is episode two of Writing on the Walls, Dorothy Cooya podcast. In the late 1940s and 1950s, long before the fall of the Soviet Union, the release of its archives and widespread knowledge of its atrocities, Dorothy buzzing off the back of her trip to the 1957 Youth Festival in Moscow, was as red as they come. In 1958, she graduated from the Young Communist League to become an adult member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, where she would remain until at least the mid-1980s. Communism to this day is a contentious issue, but in its simplest form, communist ideology was a no-brainer for many black activists during the post-war years, advocating as it was for racial equality and the end of colonial capitalism. I spoke with Professor of African Diaspora Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, Stephen Small, about the dichotomy of Pan-Africanism and communism and how this shaped Dorothy's politics. Dorothy was born in the early 30s, So in the 40s, she was a young teenager. But we know that already at that time, she was active, she was politically conscious. She'd already experienced racial discrimination and probably sexism. And she was conscious and wanted to be involved. And she joined the Young Communist Party, even though she was underage, because she wanted to have a significant impact in changing the world. By the 50s, as she became, you know, slightly older and a teenager, we know that she was involved in both, on the one hand, Communist Party activities, and on the other hand, Pan-African activities. She was conscious of both. And the information we don't have is how did she reconcile the priorities and the values and the analysis and the activities of the Communist Party 
with the values and the priorities of Pan-Africanists. Pan-Africanists were very much involved in communism. But I think what we know is that Pan-Africanists saw communism as incomplete uh, in terms of its analysis of race. And it's clear that Dorothy came to take that view. Pan-Africanists recognized that capitalism was important, that capitalist and economic exploitation of Africa and of Africans in the Americas was important. And several of them, several Pan-Africanists like Robeson and C.L.R. James and George Padmore in that period went to the Soviet Union. But the problem was communists did not pay enough attention to racism and Pan-Africanists didn't like this and Dorothy didn't like this. And communists did not pay enough attention to working class racism. They mainly focused on ruling class racism. And what Pan-Africanists pointed out is that, yeah, there was class oppression, class, but working class white people also benefited from and exploited black people. And my impression is that as Dorothy got older into the 60s and 70s, she became less and less involved in communism and more and more involved in Pan-Africanism. It's clear to me that Dorothy benefited a lot from her involvement in communism. She learned a great deal. And, and in that period, uh, communists were probably the most active people who were challenging racism, even though their analysis was inadequate and incomplete. Because the British Empire, as you know, mainly are mainstream academics in Britain and mainstream politicians, overwhelmingly, they basically celebrated the British Empire. They basically said little or nothing about the atrocities that enabled the British to colonize African nations and to kidnap, capture, and enslave Africans. But the communists would discuss this. Uh, and so this was a first, you know, important opening for Dorothy. It's important to recognize that the idea that Liverpool has always been a city of racial harmony is actually complete nonsense. We have overwhelming and consistent evidence of racial discrimination, of racial violence, of racial abuse, of racial stereotypes, from the time that black people arrived in Liverpool, and we've been there, as you know, for hundreds of years, black people were segregated uh, into Liverpool one. And then during and after the war, they were moved. We were moved up the hill and segregated in Liverpool eight. So first and foremost, it was racial discrimination. And Dorothy was aware of that. Racial discrimination in Britain in this period and through the 60s is typically called a colour bar. It's such a British euphemism for what in practice was really institutional racism, direct, intentional, hostile, and highly consequential in uh, adversely impacting the lives of black women, black men, and black families. So the color bar was a main issue. Racial discrimination in housing, in jobs, in education, and elsewhere, okay? Second issue is that um, during the Second World War, it's reported that there were up to 150,000 African-American military, mainly men, but a lot of women. And they also faced some discrimination, some from local white people in Britain, but also a lot of discrimination from white American men who were hostile and violent and wanted to constrain African-Americans in Britain. So Dorothy would have known about that. She was still young but she would have heard about it. She would have discussed it. There were so many people there at that time. 
The other thing that I'm curious about is that Liverpool was the most important port in Britain for the British Empire for a long period of time. And also Liverpool was the main port where black people from the Caribbean, from the United States, from Africa, that's where they arrived when they were on their way to London. So we know that forever African-Americans during slavery, African-Americans and Africans after slavery in the 1880s and 1890s, they arrived in Liverpool. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah arrived in Liverpool. Uh, Namdi Azikwe arrived in Liverpool. Probably Una Morrison and Claudia Jones may have arrived in Liverpool. I'm pretty sure Marcus Garvey arrived in Liverpool in the 40s. And then separately, Amy Ashwood Garvey, who was his first wife, but also a very independent and powerful Pan-Africanist herself in Jamaica, in the US, in the UK and in West Africa. So it's I'm curious, particularly in the 40s and 50s, as to what Dorothy heard about these people, whether Dorothy interacted with people. Of course, Paul Robeson, we know that she was there and she met him. And we constantly see this photograph and hear that she gave flowers. I can't believe that Dorothy was content just to give flowers. I'm convinced she must have wanted to have a conversation. Maybe she did have a conversation. And what kind of things Paul Robeson shared with her. So this is the other thing that was going on at that time. By 1960, Dorothy had left nursing and in March of that year also noted leaving the Jacaranda after, quote, three months' employment. The Jacaranda, a nightclub, coffee bar and music venue, opened in 1958. Its owner, Alan Williams, and music promoter, the Trinidadian-born Lord Woodbine, were to become legend for their role in launching the career of none other than the Beatles. Known as the Jack, the venue was also one of few in the city centre that welcomed black musicians and patrons alike, and fashionable within its white, bohemian scene. As is lovingly documented in Anthony Hogan's book, The Beatmakers, the Mersey beat that gained worldwide fame during the post-war years had been heavily inspired, read appropriated, from black musicians in Liverpool as well as across the Atlantic. But that's another story. In October 1960, Dorothy set off for Pastures New in Switzerland. Through her white liberal connections at the CPGB, Dorothy got a job as housekeeper and nanny for a married couple working as interpreters based at the heart of the post-war peace movement in Geneva. Details from this period are sparse, but what does survive is a character reference written by the Lady of the House and read here by Project Archivist Vicky Karen. Miss Dorothy Kuya worked in our home from October 1960 to February 1962. She had to run our household independently as both my husband and I are working full time. Her main job, apart from that of housekeeper, cooking, washing, ironing, shopping, cleaning, was to look after our two daughters, who at the time of her engagement were three and five years old. Although there were at the beginning some difficulties with language, we speak French at home, 
My children quickly grew strongly attached to Miss Kuya, as she took an active interest in children, is even tempered with them, cheerful and has a special gift for occupying them with small responsibilities, handicrafts, etc. She was a most precious person in our home, as she could cope, fully trained nurse, with all the children's sicknesses which affected my daughters. During her stay in our home, I had to leave Geneva twice, several weeks, leaving her alone with the responsibilities of our household, and it is thanks to her that my absence did not unsettle my daughters. Miss Kuya left to further her training by taking the Montessori course. We deeply regret this parting, but think that, henceforward, many children will be happy to be cared for by her. I think the best testimonial we can issue for Miss Kuya is the fact that my daughters often ask, why does Dorothy not come back and live with us? And it's signed by Emmeline. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, you can really yeah. see the impact she's had on the family and the children. The, the daughters must have just adored her. Yeah. And just, um, you know, these little sort of instances in her life are recorded in, like, Ray Costello's book, in interviews that she's done. She's mentioned these things, but to actually come across that letter, that reference letter, and have all that extra detail about that date, you know, that you've got on your timeline is just fantastic, isn't it? It is, really incredible. And I didn't know that Dorothy went to study the Montessori course. I don't know what that is. So it's a type of um, childcare. Okay. Um, So it clearly (laughs) shows she was, you know, as the letter says, she took an active interest in children and she was really keen to develop her skills and be the best possible mm. teacher, educator, person for the family, for the children. On returning to England in 1962, Dorothy continued her work with children at nurseries in London before being awarded a scholarship by the Greater London Council to study at Hillcroft Adult Residential College, specialising in history, sociology, economics, political theory and English literature. Hillcroft was a college dedicated to providing educational opportunities for women with little or no formal qualifications. After completing her course at Hillcroft, Dorothy studied for a further three years at Philippa Fawcett College of Education for her teacher's certificate. The archive holds many items from this period that had been lovingly kept for over 50 years. I asked Vicky about her impression of this time in Dorothy's life as reflected in the collection. There's a whole series on education. Now, this covers quite a broad range of material from Dorothy's own school books and school days right through to studying at the Hillcroft College, um, residential further education for women, later at Philippa Fawcett, where she studied her teacher training. But it also uncovers postgraduate study. So there's papers from the University of Warwick, Now, in 1990, Dorothy enrolled on a course to study at diploma or master's level for race and ethnic studies. We're lucky enough to have some of her essays. There's also her proposal for her dissertation on public attitudes towards interracial marriages and interracial sexual relations. 
what I find really interesting is the fact that she's even kept it. I don't think I have any school, you know, I'm not that type of person. I don't have any school books or essays from uni. You know, I've not kept any of that. And I find it really interesting that she's kept it at all. Um, but what, you know, what do you think that says about her and about, you know, the subjects that she's chosen as well? Can you tell us about them? I think this shows how much she valued education. This this learning was important to her and maybe it was a source of reference. Maybe it was something she could go back to. What is really fascinating is when she was studying teacher training, everybody got an opportunity to pick a specialism and Dorothy selected arts and crafts. And now that I can take a step back and look at the wider archive, this makes perfect sense. She's very creative. She's very interested in arts and culture. And I can see why she wanted to keep her work. Uh, lots of mixed media pieces, textiles, batik, watercolours, ink, oils. And there's a beautiful, beautiful folder. It must have been for an examination piece. It's got an examination number handwritten in the corner. And it's all about the history of the guitar in different <laughs> cultures. And she's clearly spent hours researching yeah. and putting this together. And she must have been proud of it. And I would love to know what kind of mark she got for it. Mm. It surely passed because... And if it didn't, she would have argued. I would have argued <laughs> for yeah. it. It's beautiful. Yeah. But so well researched, so well presented. But for me, that sets the template for everything she does. Mm. Education is important. She reads, she learns, she takes that on board and takes it forward mm. and shares her knowledge. And why did she switch from nursing to teaching? Again, there's nothing in the archive that documents that decision. Mm. But I think of her life around that time. Both of these subjects, both of these professions, I think they're almost like a calling to people. Mm. They feel compelled to go and work in healthcare or they feel they they need to to be a teacher, be an educator. And maybe this is what's happened to Dorothy. In 1957, she attends the World Festival of Youth and Students in Moscow. She's been involved with the Young Communist League and the Communist Party, and she's attended lectures. So maybe she wants to pass on this love of learning, this love of education, this meeting people from different backgrounds, different cultures, and collaborating and working together. Mm. And maybe she sees teaching as a way of engaging with the next generation yeah. coming up. Yeah. As if full-time education and training wasn't enough, during the 1960s, Dorothy became part of the vanguard of black political activists in London. Claudia Jones was a Trinidad and Tobago-born activist, founder of the West Indian Gazette, and most famously known as the mother of Caribbean Carnival in Britain. After being deported from the US for her political identity, which I'm sure you can guess by now, she was welcomed to the UK by black activists in 1955 joined the CPGB and quickly got to work. Considering the existing colour bar, the anti-black Notting Hill riots of 1958, 
the Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1962, and popular racist political discourse, black people were experiencing racism on every level in society. Claudia was a pioneer, popularizing the theory of the triple oppression of black women and is increasingly studied as one of the most important black feminists of the 20th century. Unfortunately, due to a long battle with an illness contracted from poor living conditions in Harlem during her youth, Claudia passed away on Christmas Eve, 1964, aged 49. We've no solid evidence that Dorothy knew or worked with Claudia, but the archive is massive and we haven't had time to go through every piece. But what we do know is that Dorothy noted hearing of Claudia's death on the 1st of January 1965 and attended her funeral with over 400 others on the 9th. A burial plot was purchased and Claudia Jones, the mother of Caribbean Carnival, was laid to rest next to the father of communism, Karl Marx, at Highgate Cemetery. We came across CP historian David Horsley early on in the project, as his profile and obituary of Dorothy on the party website is one of few articles found online. David was able to share much knowledge, having studied and written about black British communists such as Claudia Jones and her cousin Trevor Carter, Winston Pinder, Billy Strachan, Cleston Taylor, Nadia Catus, Pale Prescott, and more. Some of these names are also littered throughout Dorothy's papers from the 1960s. I interviewed David on Zoom to explore why many black activists during the post-war period were attracted to the Communist Party. David, a long-time anti-racist campaigner, as you will hear, is to this day dedicated and spirited. Uh, and I think with the Pan-African connection, uh, we have to remember that in during the Second World War and just after, uh, people like Jomo Kenyatta and uh, Kwame Nkrumah were in the UK. And certainly in the late 30s, Kenyatta was very close to the, to the Communist parties. And I think, I think went to the Soviet Union on occasions. Uh, Nkrumah was very close to the Communist Party when he was in Britain. And um, I think even in, in his autobiography, which was called Ghana, I used to have a first edition. I don't know what happened to that. I'm sure he mentions people like Palm Dutt, who was one of the theoreticians of the Communist Party. People like that were very close to the Communist Party in those days. This, this didn't always last, especially when they went back to their countries. But the Communist Party, whatever differences, the, the Communist Party in, the, in Britain always supported their freedom struggles. Uh, I mean, the Daily Worker was the only daily paper in those days, as the Morning Star is still now, that will su totally support liberation struggles in other countries. Um, I mean, the Daily Worker exposed atrocities in the fight for independence in Kenya, for example, and exposed the concentration camps that were set up there. While the rest of the British media was, you know, just talking about Mau Mau as some kind of savages and so on and so forth. I think that 
unequivocal support for national liberation struggles, whether they be in Asia or Africa, would mean a lot to black people in Britain who were politically minded, um, maybe not to communism or socialism, but certainly when they were seeing people like themselves, um, as in the African countries, being suppressed and humiliated, you had this the Communist Party supporting that, uh, supporting um, the, the struggles. When the Empire Windrush docked in 1948, that everybody obviously knows about, the daily workers sent Peter Fryer uh, down to the docks to report on this, and it was a very, very uh, positive report. It had such an impact on Fryer that he uh, he left the Communist Party in 1956, but he kept his connection with black people in Britain and wrote several books, mm-hmm. very important books on black people in, in Britain. I'm sure you'll know of the, the main one. Staying power. Staying power, yeah, Staying yes. Power. Bit of a Bible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I might add, he goes up to the 50s, I think. He doesn't mention people like Billy Strachan, mm-hmm. which did irk me, rather. Because when Peter Fryer left the party, he became a Trotskyist for a while. And uh, I saw him speak. It went, must have been in the 80s or so in Brixton, actually, very well. He, you know, he spoke on, um, he, he's written a number of smaller books on on uh, black people in Britain. So he's a, that that must have had a huge effect on him, that mm-hmm. um, seeing the wind rush dock. And I must add to this, something I looked this up. Um, now, uh, an academic called John Callahan has written a book on the Communist Party. He's certainly not a communist. He's very critical. He's also written a book on Palm Dutt. Palm Dutt's very important. He was um, he was a communist from the beginning, from 1920-21. He was mixed race or biracial. Uh, his mother was a Swiss Swedish and his father was Indian. And I think this made him more aware than most white communists about race and the colonial struggles. This is not from Dutt, but this is in Callahan's book on Dutt. And he says, and I'm going to quote from this, it's important actually, I found this yesterday. This is talking about the docking of the Empire Windrush in 48. And of course, we might, sorry, before I say, you've got to remember it's a Labour government who were most disturbed by the Empire Windrush. We now know through their papers that they didn't want this at all. So all this, you know, tinted red glasses about the Attlee government, yeah, they did some good things domestically, like the NHS and so on, and housing. However, they were putting down what they would call rebellions in the colonies at the same time. But I'll say no more about the Labour Party. Anyway, I've got a quote here from, from, from Callahan's book, and it's to do with the Empire Windrush, and it said... There was a fear that communists would exploit tensions created by immigration. And these were voiced by the conservative front bench as early as July 1948, when the House of Commons was told that, quote, this is from a Tory front bencher, so many of the West Indians who had come over on the Empire Windrush were already happily placed in communist homes, unquote. Now, I don't know how many, 
but it says something about the paranoia of the Tories and probably and Labour as well. But it also says something about the the internationalism of Communist Party of its rank and file, if you see what I'm saying. So I found that and I thought that's pretty important, actually. As well as the CPGB, the other organisation playing a prominent role in Dorothy's life during the 1960s, as documented in her archive, is the Movement for Colonial Freedom. The MCF was established in 1954 as the amalgamation of smaller anti-colonial groups and fronted by left-wing Labour MP Fenner Brockway. The MCF in its heyday was from the top, supported by up to 100 MPs, and from the ground, more radical, Labour, Socialist and Communist members served on its area councils and national bodies. The MCF was the post-war anti-colonial movement at its most unified, and including its membership and affiliates from across the globe, which included trade council and unions, peace societies and student organisations, the number involved with the MCF by the mid-1960s totaled around 3 million. Dorothy would work with the Movement for Colonial Freedom for the next decade, witnessing the decolonisation of scores of African countries, as well as the Chile for Solidarity Campaign Committee, the Committee for Peace in Vietnam and the anti-apartheid movement in the UK. In 1970, the organisation changed its name to reflect the changing times. Now liberation, it moved to encompass economic and social self-determination for black people at home and abroad. Liberation is still in operation today, overseen by Joint Presidents Maggie Bowden and Jeremy Corbyn. Here's Vicky and I chatting about the documents in Dorothy's archive from this time and what they say about her. Outside of formal education, she's been involved with two key organisations that I've really, I really think has helped her develop. So the first one would be the Movement for Colonial Freedom mm. and the second one, I feel, is the Communist Party. Yeah. So... Looking at material in the archive relating to the movement for colonial freedom, there's only around three folders and it covers the period from 1953 up to 1978. There are minutes, there's correspondence, there's reports, a whole series of publications, including the Liberation Journal that the um, movement for colonial freedom produced. And these show how active... Dorothy became in the organisation. So she is involved from around 1963. She is setting up and participating in various working parties. And these working parties are acting on reports from organisations like the Race Relations Board, the Community Relations Commission, and also the Institute for Race Relations. Mm. 
And later, Dorothy becomes secretary of the London and Home Counties branch. And this is at the same time that she starts working up here in Liverpool for the Community Relations Commission. So she's travelling a lot, working full time and going back down to London to fulfil her duties as as a secretary. Later, she continues to be involved and she's working at a national level. She's on the executive too. Mm. what's also quite interesting that we found is Dorothy has a friendship with a lady called Elizabeth or Betty Dorman now Betty's very active in the anti-colonial movement particularly regarding Uganda and Kenya and it's not quite clear where they met it could have been at the movement for colonial freedom it could have been at the communist party but both women were also involved in the national assembly of women Mm. and this is what i'm finding names are coming up and there's a real overlap between the organizations that they are part of yeah that is fascinating i think you could come up with some you know crazy spider diagram couldn't you of how all the parties and the organizations are connected yeah um could you tell us about some of the campaigns that are in the movement for colonial freedom um archive or folders so there's material relating to Rhodesia, to apartheid in South Africa, and also looking at the movement towards independence in, in Ghana. There's minutes from student meetings that Dorothy attended. There's correspondence that she was copied into. And one of the other things in the um, collection that's quite interesting is there's um, a lot of material relating to Fenner Brockway and there were big 80th birthday celebrations for Fenner Brockway and Dorothy attended. Um, now Brockway was a politician, he was a campaigner, um, staunch anti-war activist. He himself was a conscientious objector during the First World War In fact, he was imprisoned for refusing to be conscripted. He served time here in Walton. And while he was at Walton Prison, he set up a a small newspaper for other prisoners who were also conscientious objectors. Mm. So, again, that... It's that shared values and that campaigning. And even though he's a lot older than Dorothy, I can see how she relates to him. A lot of the peace campaigns that women's groups were involved in, Dorothy was there too. Mm. Big movement towards um, peace across the world, across uh, against nuclear weapons and disarmament. And there's a lot of posters and material in the archive from that time too. Wow. It is. It's just fascinating. I was joking yesterday saying she's like um, the Forrest Gump of Black British <laughs> history. <laughs> Any sort of pivotal moment. And she's, and she's there. there. She's she is, there. you know, yeah. and that's what we're finding, isn't it? Is Absolutely. that she's been sort of in the background playing an important role in all these campaigns because I'd read... Um, I think it was a historian, Stephen Howe, who said that in its first 10 years, the movement for colonial freedom was like one of the most important political pressure groups. Um, you know, and again, just that she's there from from early on, yeah. getting stuck in, meeting all these people. Absolutely. And absolutely. that idea as well that we've come across again and again um, about this global network of people and how at that time um, Liverpool was like that in a sense the political activity but Dorothy very much had that world global sort of outlook 
and identity as a black person rather than you know being a local sort of scouse girl I don't think she'd ever describe herself as you know kind of round the way well if you listen to her voice you know there's not yeah. a trace is there really and I think the archive backs that up because you see how she's involved in national committees different organizations she starts small looks at what's happening locally, develops confidence, skills, knowledge, and then gets involved at a national level. Um, around the same time as being part of the movement for colonial freedom, she's active in the Communist Party. Mm. So there's around a box of material in the archive covering the Communist Party. That covers from around about early 1960s, maybe 64, but it goes right up to 1985. Mm. Again, there's minutes, there's correspondence, there's statements from the party, there's reports, papers from conferences that they held. In 1962, Dorothy was a member of the West African branch of the Communist Party. Now, she doesn't appear to get too involved in this, and I think that coincides with her studies at college. Mm. But afterwards... By the time she's finished all her teacher training, um, in 1967, she's a part of the Racial Discrimination Committee mm. and these go down to the House of Commons and she speaks. And she's clearly not intimidated by the surroundings. Yeah, she yeah. Um, attends many of these committee meetings, keeps the involvement level up and by the late 1970s, she's on the National Race Relations Committee. Mm. So I think both of these organisations are looking at reports, looking at what's happening and maybe preparing for the new legislation on race relations mm. in 1968 and responding to that legislation and how it's perceived. But she's definitely at the forefront. By the end of the 1960s, Dorothy was working as a primary school teacher at Edith Neville Junior School in Camden. Perhaps encouraged by the contrast between the lives of the bourgeois children she'd looked after in Geneva versus the grim realities for poor black children in the UK, in the next decade, Dorothy's attentions turned to exposing institutional racism in child welfare and education. No doubt encouraged by her former mentor Ludwig Hesse, in the 1970s, Dorothy would also return to Liverpool to take up the role of the first community relations officer of the newly established Community Relations Council, of which Hesse was a founding chairman. For black people in Britain, a clue to what would come to define the decade after the 1960s can be found in Dorothy's 1968 diary, where in June, she writes two simple words, black power. Black identity in Britain and the US was changing rapidly and Dorothy will be back in her home city to experience it. But more on that next time. To see us out, I asked Liverpool 8-born Professor Stephen Small 
for his thoughts on the Dorothy Kuya archive and the project. It's a different angle. It, it's also, I think, indispensable to a, a more comprehensive history than what exists at the present time because, you know, these, these histories are central but they've been silenced, they've been marginalized, they've been hidden, and um, they have to be they have to be excavated, they have to be investigated, and, and they have to be written about. It's a real service to the community, and it's a real service to knowledge, and it's a real contribution to, to a more accurate uh, history of the period, uh, which we, 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 we never had when we were young. And that's why, you know, there'll be tremendous productivity. Number one, it documents Dorothy's life in and of itself. She's very important. We need to know about it. It's a shame we couldn't do it before, but we will get this information out and you'll be central. And I hope that you'll play a major role in writing. Number two, it's very important to get this history of uh, the black community in Liverpool that acknowledges how we are different from other cities the way in which we have, you know, a multi-generational continuity in which we have, you know, black people who are primarily of African origin as citizens in, in segregated Liverpool 8, in contrast to the Windrush generation. And I know there are Windrush generation people in Liverpool. My dad's from Jamaica, but we were not the majority. So that's number two document Liverpool. But number three also is to expand the history of black Britain beyond London. Uh, London dominates in many areas in ways that are, uh, I think, unacceptable. Black London is not representative of Black Britain. Black London is not even indicative of Black Britain. And it's necessary to, to identify the history of Black people in Liverpool, the community as a whole, but Dorothy in particular and, and others, to show that there's a bigger history than a history that is represented just by the Windrush generation. So I think, you know, the work that you're doing will uh, identify new information, will create new knowledge, and I think we'll all benefit. Thank you for listening to the Dorothy Kuya podcast. Forever thanks to Paul and Tammy for allowing us access to their Auntie Dorothy's archive. Thank you to Writing on the Wall and National Museums Liverpool for supporting the project. Thanks to Datius Tago, our archives assistant and project participants. Special thanks to archivist Vicky Kieran, whose passion for community archives has been a blessing. And finally, a big thank you to Professor Stephen Small and David Horsley for their knowledge, their constant support and enthusiasm. This podcast was researched, written and narrated by me, Jenea Pickett, edited by the lovely Rory Ballantyne, with support from Melodic Distraction. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and will join us again for part three of The Political Life and Times of Dorothy Kuya.